I'm Joseph. And I'm Nick. And this is Fish Jelly. Lo, 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 lo. How are you? I'm good. Uh, how are you? Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm at a loss for words. Oh, that's rare. It's the week before Christmas. And all through the house. Wow. This will be the last full week coming up in the, our current house. Yes. We are moving. We signed for the house on Tuesday. So in two days? Yes, in two days. And then by the time it gets recorded and... In 48 hours, our lives will change irrevocably. <laughs> we'll get keys. We're told we'll get keys on Christmas Eve. Oh, yes. It's just the best Christmas ever. So... Moving on. Uh, where to begin? Um, well, let's start with uh, Canada's Drag Race. Oh Yes, and put it to rest. Jesus. Put it to rest. Season two, the finale. Oh. So to spoil it, who won? Uh, what's your... Isis Couture. Isis Couture. So the top three were Isis Couture, Pythia. And uh, that other one. That other one. Kendall Gender. Kendall Gender. <laughs> what did you think about the season overall? That it is struggling to be relevant or fun or entertaining or uh, I don't, interesting. I think the judging panel... Is K. Terrible. Well, I, I like Brad Goreski. Uh, In small doses. Like, as a one-time guest judge, sure. Yeah, I don't know that he brought much. Uh, well, I think the trauma from season one and all the backlash regarding the judges' critiques... Jeffrey Boyer Chapman. Particularly against Jeffrey Boyer Chapman, has caused this season's judging panel to be, like, overly nice, yeah. kind of. Like, their critiques seemed really interesting. They just seemed fake. The Yeah, it just didn't feel very... And Brad Goreski, that's like Neil Patrick Harris. Like, just a little bit's fine. Tracy Melchor um, is whatever. Like Same with Amanda Bruegel. Same with Amanda Bruegel. Okay. Like, hearing them say the lines, you know, RuPaul's lines is like... Uh... Yeah, I don't necessarily love... It's like watching... Uh, elementary school version of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Or listening to, like, Kids Bop mm -hmm. do, like, Bodak Yellow. Or Glee, Glee covers. <laughs> or Glee covering, like, uh, it's like oh, let me Janet turn, Jackson's Nasty. Let like, me turn ooh. this off. Uh, so, that's how I feel about it. That being said, the finale episode, the, the judges had a lot of nice things to say to the queens, which they always do in the final episode. Mm -hmm. So, that was nice, but... It is getting repetitive. Like, like, a, like a toxic relationship. They beat you up and then right before they leave you, they... Well, even squeeze. just kind of like how every queen will talk about like what this will mean to them and, you know, like what would they say to their younger selves. And it all kind of, you know, it all kind of sounds the same after a while. Uh, all around the world, same song. You know, what <laughs> format I, I have said I would really like to see, which I was surprised because... Uh, Wild Presents Plus has a show called Painted with Raven. Mm -hmm. So the drag queen Raven is hosting this makeup competition reality show. And we all know Raven does RuPaul's makeup now. And as much as I don't care for Raven, I really do like the format of the show because all of the contestants stay 
every episode, but whomever like loses the episode gets muted for the next episode. So we still get to see all of these people perform throughout the many challenges. And um, I actually like that. And I also like that it's all being done via Zoom. So there isn't a lot of the fake... They try. Mm -hmm. They try to get these queens to talk amongst themselves while they're all in like a Zoom chat. But because I think just logistically it doesn't work the same, we get a lot more of them sort of explaining their technique and exploring their talent. So I wouldn't mind Drag Race going back to that. Like letting these people do what they're actually good at. Like constructing garments. And I would love to see these queens... uh, like show the process of how they come up with a lip sync and how they, you know, I've always been very fascinated by how these queens come up with choreography, however they perform a song, you know, before they actually get on stage and just focus more on their talent and less of like this basic, I don't know. Would you say that you are ravening for it? Ravening, ravenous for Raven. I'm definitely not ravenous for Raven, but I do appreciate just as a function of, the pandemic and the logistics of filming that this show painted with Raven does seem a little more focused on these people's actual talent. Raven's probably the weakest part of it to me because she doesn't really add much to anything, but watching these people uh, work out these challenges is interesting. But anyway, getting back to Canada's drag race, I was surprised ISIS won. I was for sure thinking Pythia was going to win, Mm -hmm. but uh, you know, I didn't think it, any of the three were like, none of them blew me away. No, I think the two strongest people got eliminated very early over right. silly, um, inconsistent judging techniques. Uh, so it it is what it is, and now it's done. Now it's done. Moving on, Queen's uh, Queen of the Universe. <laughs> we watched episode four. Yeah. The theme was duets. Mm-hmm. So there were eight queens remaining. Mm-hmm. At the start of the episode. So they were put into pairs, four groups, and they were each given like a song style that they had to write a, like an original song to. And that was okay. <laughs> it was better than the last episode, yeah. It was. Um, I, I don't know what to say. Except... Uh, I mean, you know, it's it's okay. It, uh, I think you again. It's another one of those things where I, I guess if you're going to watch it, you just have to look past uh, how overly produced it is. Uh, but I will say I do enjoy watching Ada Vox and uh, her singing ability. And Lavoie is entertaining. I kind of liked Lavoie's little song. That felt like an actual pop song to me. Yes, and I thought uh, Ada Vox and Aria B. Cassidyne, their song was the most fun. It almost reminded me of like. Brandy and Monica's The Boy Is Mine. Yeah, yeah, I Except with better singing and more attitude. Yes. Um, it's obviously not as well produced as The Boy Is Mine, but the vibe of it was fun. Mm-hmm. In the bottom were uh, Ginzilla mm-hmm. with Regina Voce. Regina Voce. Regina Voce. Which and theirs was Girl Power, right? Yeah. And they literally, that were, those were the lyrics. The lyrics were so simple. They sounded so off. Because Ginch has a very deep voice mm-hmm. and Rahina, they just didn't match. So they, the two of them were eliminated. And then we're told that the next bottom two, which were Lavoie and Leona Winter, only one of them can stay. 
So it's like, damn, y'all just getting rid of people like... <laughs> so they had to sur- survival sing. They had to do a survival sing-off, which I actually did like that concept. So each queen was told they had to be prepared to sing like their signature song as a way to stay on the show. Hope you don't have to sing another one, I guess. Um, Lavoie <clears throat> did... Uh, Barbara Streisand. And Leona did... Uh, Gaga. Edge of Glory. Lavoie did a great job. Mm-hmm. And... Leona Winter was sent home. So three people were sent home. Yeah, they, they must have... Uh, are they in a budget free fall? Jesus. Yeah, this shit is moving very quickly. Like, but whoa! Yeah, anyway. All right. So... I think... I guess since the Alec Baldwin thing wasn't actually like a movie, I should talk about it now. Okay. Okay, so was it last week or the week before I talked about how Alec Baldwin is in trouble for giving that interview with George Stephanopoulos... Like, the district attorney in New Mexico said that she has a problem with his interview. So, I decided to watch it. And boy, was that a problem. (laughs) I caught parts of it. I am so confused. After watching the interview, I can see why the district attorney is like, you need to shut up. And I can't believe that if Alec Baldwin has a lawyer, like, that this person didn't advise him... I, yeah, I don't understand why no one in Mr. Baldwin's camp was like, don't give this interview right now. So, Alec Baldwin was also served as a producer on this production, this uh, independent lower-budget film called Rust, where Rust. the cinematographer was shot and killed Rust in the by dust. a gun that mm-hmm. Alec was holding, and then the holding. director was also injured. Mm-hmm. So, as the person who was holding the weapon and one of the producers... I just don't understand why he was talking about so many things. Like, so the armorer, which is the person on set responsible for the firearms. He's talking about that person. He's talking in great detail about how he handled the gun. He talked a lot about how the the crew on set were very stressed. He talked about cost cutting. They show a lot of posts um, he made during the shoot, talking about him being exhausted. Mm-hmm. And then George Stephanopoulos, I, like I just, he did a great job of. It, it just seemed like this interview was too good to be true for him because Alec Baldwin's is ha- like Alec Baldwin is handing George like all this like, material, like Diane Sawyer with Whitney, or oh my God. Um, Katie Couric with Sarah Palin. You can see in George's face, he's like, I can't believe you're telling me this, but I can't not ask the follow-up question. Right. Um, so, he addresses a lot of the criticism Alec Baldwin received since the incident. So, one thing is that a lot of people were saying, like, you shouldn't ever point a gun at someone on set like that's just kind of like standard knowledge i don't know that to be true um because i've never filmed a movie where there are guns but alec baldwin spends a lot of time talking about how the cinematographer the person who was shot and killed was telling him to point the gun at her like he was she was showing him like this is the angle and you know but then of course like it was pointed at her which seems to not make sense that she was instructing him on how to hold the gun and then standing right in front of him. But he spends a lot of time... My overall takeaway from his attitude of it is I think he wanted to explain how he's not at fault. And I think that's, from a PR perspective, a really poor choice because you're not the victim, sir. Mm-hmm. And from a legal standpoint, it just seems like you should not say anything Yeah. while this is under investigation. And certainly, a civil 
suit is going to follow, if not criminal charges. Mm -hmm. Um, One area where I thought he really fucked up was he explains that generally on set with the many, many movies and TV shows he's filmed where he's had to handle guns, there's always been a prop person there who would demonstrate that the gun is empty and safe. So then, of course, George's follow-up question is like, so the armorer on this set didn't do that, so why did you use the gun? And it's like, no, why? Like, that. when he said those words, I'm just like, why would you say this? Because now you're admitting that... I mean, I guess if Because you, you brought up a good point, that what is the protocol? Like, is there an official protocol? What is the law concerning using real firearms? And so it's like, if there isn't one then this man has established on record that there was a protocol that he normally follows, but he didn't do it on this film. (laughs) Uh, I think that, you know, unless if you've ever been in any kind of legal trouble, you are advised not to give any more uh, descriptive answers than you need to. Alec also had a hard time, it seems, describing what it meant to be told the gold the gun is cold versus hot, which I thought was another huge faux pas. Like, he's saying, like, well, I was told the gun is cold. And then George is like, well, what does that mean? And then he's like, well, it didn't have ammunition or something. Well, what does hot mean? I mean, yeah, he should have just said, it's my understanding that when I'm told that, that it means it's ready to be used safely. That's which, it. Which he did, but he fumbled a lot. So it's like again, now you sound like you don't understand well, what cold means. Again, so. he's trying to he's trying to demonstrate that he is a professional in his field by knowing all these little details. But nobody needs to know those details because once you start getting into that, and anytime you kind of stumble over right. any of your your terminology, it makes you look like you don't know what you're talking about. I.e., you are liable. It seems he also feels the need to explain that he didn't pull the trigger. And that's the sound bite you get in the trailer for the episode Mm -hmm. is I didn't pull the trigger. So, of course, as an audience person, you're like, well, how the hell did the gun go off? A ghost. And then he explains that he was cocking the hammer. Yes. But his finger was never on the trigger. And then when he let go of the hammer, that's when the gun fired. So it's like, oh, my God. From Again, from a PR perspective, like, why are you trying to convince people that you didn't mean to shoot her? You did, Blanche. Like, you, you did you shoot shot her. her but it doesn't matter how the gun went off. Yeah. You were holding the gun, pointing it at her. You cocked the hammer. And I don't know much about guns. I have fired a gun once. But just from watching, like, old westerns, which is what Rust was, we know that people shoot guns by just cocking the hammer. Mm-hmm. That's, like, a very common visual. Mm-hmm. So it's like... You saying that you didn't pull the trigger is just like you trying to find ways to show you're not culpable. But you can also fire a gun from cocking the hammer. Right. I, but I so, think, but I mean, the, the, that's not even the argument. This person was shot and killed. You were holding the gun that killed her. However, it wasn't malicious. You believed that this was a prop gun that was safe to fire. And, and that is where the argument needs to be sussed out. Not with what him needing to clear his name. Right. And, and then, and he does get into like with the investigation, we'll find out what really happened. It's like, yeah, you should wait until after. Yeah, why don't we do just hold on a second? Then George Stephanopoulos plays a bit, a sound clip from George Clooney on Mark Marin's podcast talking about Alec Baldwin's incident. And George Clooney's saying, like, everyone knows, every actor knows when you're on set, you have to check that the gun is not loaded. Like, everyone does that. That's just like acting 101 on set. Sure. So then George 
Stephanopoulos asks Alec, what do you think about that? And he's like, well, you know, the fact that he felt the need to speak on this incident, I don't know why, but it's like we all have our own protocol. But then it's like, okay, now you fucked up again because now you're saying that you have a protocol, which would already explained was the prop person shows you it's empty, but then you admit that that didn't happen on this set. And then he goes um, that whenever... Alec claims that from a young age, when he first started acting and was using firearms, that he was told by a prop person that you shouldn't check the gun because if you manipulate the gun in that way, the prop person will take it away from you and reset it to make sure it's fine. Sure. So it doesn't make sense to open it and play with it because they're going to reprimand you and say you can't do that because now I have to redo it. So that's why he never did that, that only the prop person would do it. And then he just kept reiterating, like, I was told the gun was safe. So then George Stephanopoulos says, well, whose responsibility is it? Like, well, like, what is the actor's responsibility in this? And Alex says, to do what you're told to do. So I thought that was interesting. You know, the problem with Alec Baldwin is he always takes the bait. Like how many? In, yeah, you he know, can't help himself. He yeah. has to like say something. I, I think, you know, because he's been in trouble before with well, paparazzi and his... well, even back in the early '90s with how the press were trying to raise him and Kim Basinger. It's like you know better than to talk to these people and to respond to them in any kind of way. It just leaves you. It just leaves you vulnerable to other attacks and other critiques. And yeah, I don't know, but but this. this it's the world we live in. They also get into how a camera person on set... So they had a lot of troubles with staffing. People did go on strike. They had to hire additional film crew because some film crew left because they felt unsafe. They have an email from a camera person before the shooting happened who resigned and said he was resigning due to safety issues because there were two accidental discharges on set. So it's like, wow, okay. Then... Alex says that he was told, and I think this is what the district attorney was responding to. He says in the interview that he was told by someone in the know in New Mexico, so someone in law enforcement or something, that he would not face criminal charges. Oh, girl. He like, said that? why would, yes, he says that. Then he spends quite a bit of time, and this is the part that also blew me away. And I, like, if he has a manager or uh, someone, lawyer present, I can't believe they didn't snatch his ass up from that chair. But he starts talking about who should be seeking compensation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what? And who who's filed lawsuits already and who should file first. And there's only so much money insurance has to offer. So I think it's really weird that, like, people... And I also agree. Uh, a camera person and a script supervisor... Mm-hmm. The, the director of photography, I believe. The director of photography and the script supervisor fi- have filed civil suits mm-hmm. against the production. And Alec is saying that I think that's really sketchy that they decided to get their suits in before the husband of the dead lady filed his suit. Mm-hmm. And I agree. Mm-hmm. But he says they're doing that because there's only so much money that'll be available and they want to get theirs first. And then that's when he starts talking about, well, if anyone should be suing, it should be the husband and he should get that money and, and he should sue whomever is responsible. And it's like, probably you too, fool. Like, what, <laughs> what are you saying? Um Lastly, he um, says that 
he gets asked if, because some people are claiming it was an act of sabotage and he's like, I can't even wrap my head around that because if you would have asked me before the incident happened, could something like this happen? I would say absolutely not. But then it did. So now it's not too far away for me to believe that it was sabotage. So, you know, maybe things will come to light. It's just a very unfortunate um, situation. And it, it's just so crazy that Alec Baldwin is on this TV screen talking yeah. about this thing that he's probably going to be in big trouble for. He's also talking about how he booked a gig in January and mm -hmm. how if he felt guilty, he... Uh, he probably would kill himself, but he doesn't feel guilty because he did what he was told to do. He just says so many things that are like, ugh, if anyone had any sympathy for you, it is going to wash away. <laughs> yeah, he needs to cool it. <laughs> but whatever. Moving on, films released that uh, you didn't cover, The Lost Daughter. Yeah, well, we will be covering that, but it had a theatrical release and it comes out on Netflix this coming Friday. Net Netflix. Netflix. Um, I reviewed it for Ion Cinema out of Venice. Uh, is it a thriller? It has thriller elements, yes. Oh, God. Is uh, it good? Yeah, I love it. Uh, Olivia Coleman will most likely be nominated for an Oscar. Uh, I read the novel it's based on, well, more of a novella, really, by uh, Elena Ferrante, who's an author that has her own very interesting story herself. And um, it is the directorial debut of Maggie Gyllenhaal. Oh, you did talk about this. Yeah, no, it's good. It's really, it's really good. And I think that you will enjoy it when you finally get around to it. Yeah. Next, The Novice. The Novice. We did not get around to this. I, was it Tribeca last year? Or uh, Isabel Furman won a Best Actress Award at whatever film festival it, it played at. And it's getting some awards buzz. Uh, but it, also a pretty uh, interesting tale about this young woman that's going through it, trying to be part of this, like, uh, rowing team and who's really not cut out for it. Uh, I know I've talked about it, I think, when I saw it several months ago, but uh, it's finally opening this week. Uh, directorial debut of Lauren Hathaway, uh, which is, you know, pretty impressive. And a movie called Last Words. Yes, which I'm supposed to still cover for Ion Cinema. It opened uh, Friday. It had the Cannes 2020 label. It's a film by Jonathan Nossiter, who's uh, first film, I believe, won the top prize at Sundance in 97. And he does he puts out a film every couple of years. Uh, he reunites with Charlotte Rampling, who has a very nice little bizarre role in this. It's basically about the end of the world and the last, like, some kind of coughing disease has killed everyone. Uh, and this would have played a can in 2020, but didn't because that festival didn't happen. But anyway, this, this struggling uh, remaining uh, members of the human race gather in Athens and watch bits of old celluloid uh, until they die one by one. Uh, it's also starring Nick Nolte and Stellan Skarsgård and uh, Albert Rohrwalker. Uh, it's interesting. I just posted a clip of it. That was Oh, Nick. where you say that it's like me trying to go out to the club? Yeah, uh -oh. Nick Nolte. Oh, that's right. Um, okay, moving on to movies we watch for fun. Mm -hmm. Okay, The Fifth Chord. Yeah, you were uh, in the room when I had this on, starring Franco Nero, uh, directed by Luigi Bazzoni. Uh, it's part of a new collection by Arrow Video. They have, they're having essential giallo collections. Um, and as it the back of the Arrow description tells us, you know, after Dario Argento's The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, that kicked off the giallo craze and there were a ton of knockoffs. Uh, and this is kind of an Agatha Christie type story as Franco Nero, uh, he plays an alcoholic journalist trying to solve a case that he becomes implicated in. Uh, and, you know, the details of the plot 
remain fuzzy after you see it. But, you know, Franco Nero is very nice to look at. What's his name? Franco Nero. And you said that I watched some of this? Yeah, you were there in the background when I watched it last Sunday, actually. Oh, I do not remember. Oh, yes, he is handsome. He's the guy who um, I thought, like, he's only like 30. Yeah, he's... Yeah, yeah he is very handsome. Um, he kind of reminds me of, like... He's like, uh, like, who's that man? Clint Eastwood's son? Scott Eastwood? He kind of has like that look, but... He's better looking than he's, that. He's better looking than that man. Well, he's still married to Vanessa Redgrave. That's her second husband, because her first one was gay, that she had her children with. Uh, oh. you, you, know, you knew that, right? Natasha Richardson and um, uh, uh, Jolie Richardson, they're the children she Vanessa had with Tony Richardson, the very famous director... Uh, who's a homosexual who's homosexual I did not know that um, yes and then she ended up being with uh, Franco Nero Franco Nero's recently been in the news because he's directing that movie starring Kevin Spacey oh okay but he's been around for a long time both him, if you like Franco Nero I also suggest watching films of this period starring his arch nemesis uh, Fabio Testi who's also very handsome Fabio Testi. Okay, moving on. Terra Femme. Uh, so this week I uh, was part of a panel to give an experimental film award out for uh, the Los Angeles Films Critics Association, uh, the process of which took seven hours yesterday. Uh, and we ended up awarding the film uh, The Work in the Days, which is an eight-hour Japanese film that seems like it's a documentary, but it's not about this um this populace in the mountains of Kyoto uh, that was takes place over 14 months but was shot over years, directed by, I'm starting with this one first, by C.W. Winter and Anders Edstrom. Uh, I found it very meditative. It's eight hours long, uh, but it's called The Works and Days of Taioko Shijori in the Shiotani Basin. But So if you like experimental, long cinema, I do recommend it. But you, Terrafem, um, I also... Oh, I said Terrafem, and then you just ignored me and talked about the work in the days. Yes. Oh, okay. Anyway, well, well, because it's all part of the package of things. Okay, go ahead. Uh, Terrafem was also a film that was up for contention, uh, directed by Courtney Stevens, um, that I watched uh, as a recommendation as we were preparing this. And it was something I hadn't seen that I also really liked, uh, and it's Basically, this director put together bits and pieces of travelogues of women in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and talking about the female gaze and how uh, about women looking for themselves throughout historical documents, which I also thought was uh, kind of moving. Next, just don't think I'll scream. This will probably end up in my top 10 of all of the year. Uh, again, was uh, recommended as part of this awards process, which I had been ignorant of, even though I think I was at the Berlin Film Festival where it played in 2019. Finally had a theatrical release in 2021. Uh, it's directed by Frank Beauvais, uh, and it's about his time in 2016 where he moved from Paris to Alsace with his lover, uh, who eventually leaves him, and then over a period of several months watches 400 films. And from that this despairing moment in his life where he's also reflecting on, you know, all the turmoil in France with the Charlie Hedbo uh, assassinations and, you know, everything that was going on in 2016 in France. Uh, he pieces together bits from these films he watched in this period. So it's just segments of films playing with his voiceover narration. And I found it very moving. Hmm. Next, accidental luxuriance of the translucent watery rebus. Again. What the wh hell is that? It's a Croatian... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a Croatian animated film, again, that I watched uh, in conjunction with a ton of films this week for this award ceremony. Uh, it's a title I'd thought of, I'd seen come up before, but I'd missed. And I had, it was probably two to three glasses of wine in uh, on this. And it is an experience that uh, I found difficult to follow, but also beautiful um, about people fighting the system and uh, conceptual artists trying to start a revolutionary uh, kind of commune, I guess. But uh, it's interesting. Uh, okay, so you're watching the new Matrix movie tomorrow? Correct. So you, in preparation, you watched Matrix, The Matrix, and uh, Matrix Reloaded? Yes, and tonight I'll probably finally get to... Uh, Matrix 3? It's called something else. The Matrix... I've never seen these movies. The Matrix uh, revisionisms. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Last night you had on Matrix Reloaded and I watched like a little bit of it. Um, I, I must say I wasn't into it. So the first Matrix, uh, which I'd watched the night before, was a fun revisit. Uh, you know, I probably haven't seen it since I was about the age that I was when it came out. Uh, and I think that holds up well. Uh, again, this film made when they didn't have because my my the favorite my favorite film of the Wachowskis is still their first Bound, starring Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon. Okay, fucking love that movie. Um, and then they did this, which uh, became an immediate part of the zeitgeist, right? <clears throat> and uh, and then I think they were under a lot of pressure to, uh, to to follow this up. So they filmed the next two back to back, which were both released several months apart in 2003. I did see The Matrix Reloaded, which was released as I was graduating high school. And I remember hating it so much that I never saw the third one. Uh, but again, rewatching it, I, I really don't like it. I find it very dull. I find it very repetitive. Um, you know, some of the CGI, I don't know that it, that holds up, but I, it, I'm much less taken with it. Gabrielle Union has a cute story about um, the Matrix because she auditioned for a role in the Matrix. And she said that for the audition, she showed up pretend, like pretending to be Janet Jackson. Mm -hmm. So she went and bought the same weave hair Janet was wearing at the time, bought the same outfit Janet was wearing on the album cover um, for, I believe, uh, I don't recall which album she's talking about. Um, and went in sort of trying to do the role like Janet Jackson. And then Janet Jackson shows up at the audition. <laughs> so Gabrielle Union says that she b believes that uh, the two of them canceled each other out. Because obviously neither are in the movie. I don't know which role she auditioned for. I thought it was for Jada Pinkett's role. No, it's for the the 1999 movie. Oh, oh, oh. Um, so I, yeah. Well, you know, I, originally I thought Neo was supposed to be Will Smith, I think. Oh, maybe that when they thought that. Oh, interesting. So maybe when they thought the lead was going to be black, they would have. They might have cast a black woman opposite him as as Trinity. Maybe I don't. I don't know these characters, but um, yeah, I don't have much interest in watching the Matrix movies. And I watched the trailer for the new one. That did not grab my. I, attention. I think you should watch the first one. If, if not for, I, think. I will. Maybe if I'm on a boat again oh and God. it's plague in the cabin. Uh, you put on something last night called Soda Cracker? Oh my god. Well, you, for some reason, weren't tired at a very early hour last night. So I was Did like, I watch it? You watched part of it? Yes. Oh. Yeah, with Fred Williamson. So Fred, so, so I was looking through, because I'm rarely on HBO, because that's how I watch Matrix, and I can't... <laughs> I don't know if it was recommended or whatever, but I, I am a Fred Williamson fan, uh, believe it or not. And... Uh, 
I know he's directed several films. I've never seen a film he's actually directed. And Soda Cracker came up starring him and Maude Adams, and he's this Chicago police detective. Ooh, it's not good. Okay, I don't care for Fred Williamson. I don't think he... Because I know... Because I watched a little documentary about him after we watched... Uh, White Fire. White Fire, which I highly recommend White Fire. White Fire is fantastic yes, and terrible. Yes, it's so yes. fun. But he's the least... He's my he's my least favorite part. And learning more about Fred Williamson, he had a lot of control of his career and insisted that he only be portrayed in, like in certain light. Like well, this any is, character he played couldn't could never get beat up, couldn't die. Well, this is kind of after the black exploitation phase ended in Right. And I appreciate his efforts to sort of present himself in a particular way, but I just don't think Fred Williamson is very magnetic. So Anyway, what is Soda Cracker about? So his, First of all, his name... His nickname is Soda Cracker because he carries around soda crackers, like saltines. Like saltines. And eats them. It is... Uh, That's what caught my attention because I saw the title of the movie in a black man and I was like, what the hell is this? Yeah, so... And basically his partner, who's this crusty old white man, gets murdered right away and it turns out that he was on the take, if you will. And his new... Uh, Partner is played by Maude Adams, you know, she was a Bond girl three times, who's got a crunchy wig on, and her name is Crystal Tarver, uh, and of course, falls in love with her, I guess. Uh, it was, as you were watching the credits, it turns out you know the producer. Yes. Um, <laughs> you like, mm. yeah, not in a, not in the biblical sense, but yes, I, I have met the producer Several times, uh, <laughs> because he would he went on to do. Um, he worked with Tyler, Tyler Perry, Perry, who yeah. I had the occasion to uh, be around. Many What's times. his name though? Russell um, Ruben. Ruben Summers. No, uh, Cannon. Oh, Cannon. Yep, yeah, that, that's correct. Okay. Uh, oh Lord, someone's dying. If we were only so. Lucky. Ladybug, ladybug. <laughs> what is that from? That's that passed away year. That that little children's rhyme about the ladybug going home because her house is on fire and her children are dying. Your mom used to tell you that. I, I don't know. I've never I remember, heard that. Uh, ladybug, ladybug, fly away home. Anyway, oh. you'll have to look that up. That's a thing. Oh, but uh, Bo Svensson is in it, who I thought looked terrible by this time because <laughs> this is 1989, and Phyllis Hyman in her last oh, on-screen appearance because she, you know, committed suicide. She did beautiful woman with an even more beautiful voice. Yes, but they give they her, do her so crazy in this movie. <laughs> she's in. She's she playing a chanteuse who's uh, an elusive chanteuse who's a crackhead. I guess. Well, she's a cokehead because she's with Bo. Fenson, who's a drug dealer, and her introduction is singing this very long, complete very, song. Very long song. That is not a good song. <laughs> That's not good, but I did really appreciate all of the audience shots, because there's a very mixed audience that are, like, completely uh, wrapped up in her. Like, not interacting, just everyone staring at her like it's some From my perspective, the ceremony. best part of the film is the seven-minute sequence of Phyllis Hyman singing and the audience reacting to her. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, because they are living. If you have HBO, pull up this movie, uh, Soda Cracker, and fast forward to Phyllis Hyman singing. Oh, my God. And then her subsequent scenes, because, of course, Fred Williamson backs her in a corner by sleeping with her, and Bill Bo Svensson is mad about it. Anyway, it's garbage, but, you know... Her hair was laid. I will say that. I, you know, her Fred, breasts were beautiful. You've never... To, to defend Fred, I, I feel like... You've seen some of the N-Word Charlie movies, of which there are three. Um, and I know... I guess you haven't seen Black Caesar, which I also recommend. Uh, I mean, I'm familiar with him. I just... 
He just doesn't seem like a fun guy. I think in the 70s... And it reads in his performances. Yes. Like, uh, he seems uptight. Yes, I think that... Uh, from the 1980s on, I think that he kind of felt like that. But when... He, he seemed a little more loose in the 70s. The final thing we watched for fun was something I watched. It was a Hulu documentary called Dead Asleep. Which I think I... Yeah. You caught bits of it. The basic sort of premise is there is a guy named Randy... Like this young man, like in his early 20s, who killed one of his roommates, a lady named Brooke. And they've been like friends forever. And his defense claim was that he killed her while he was sleepwalking. Mm -hmm. You know, overall, I feel like after making of a murderer, I just think like, Netflix and Hulu and everyone else, uh, well, I think mainly Netflix and Hulu, are so desperate for like these crime-centered documentaries that they're just reaching. Because this shit was not interesting. Like, the, the... Oh, God. The... I mean, it's just like this young guy... For, okay, my initial feeling after watching this was it's just so amazing how this like young white angel gets arrested for murdering his roommate. Stabbing her 25 times. Stabbing her 25 times. He calls 911 and says, something happened, my roommate was killed, I did it, come now. Mm -hmm. And hangs up the phone. And then we see the body cam footage, and he's just sitting on the curb waiting for the cops, and they very like gently pick him up, take him to the station. They're very kind to him. Like they, you know, like even when they make him take off his clothes so they can take pictures, they're being very nice and asking him what size he prefers. And and then the the, the reaction, like the family members and law enforcement, they're like, you know, this kid, it just doesn't seem right. Like 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 what's happening so they brought a psychologist in and that's when the psychologist introduces the idea of like sleepwalking and i just thought and you know i do like to make everything about race so i'm not gonna apologize but i just feel like who's asking you to apologize for that no but you know people always say like i don't want to make it about race but it's just hard not to when you like when i watch other things and it's like had that been a black man oh it's impossible or, not to, or it's impossible or a latino know. man he would have been a thug and a murderer. Oh, yeah, yeah. And if it would have been, like, a person of, like, Middle Eastern descent, they would have called him all kinds it, of names. It reminds, that it, what, it reminds me of the end of Higher Learning when they catch the uh, Michael Rappaport's uh, terrorist and the, the white cop is so, like, uh, distraught that they can't save him. Right, yes. So I just, like, after watching this, it's just so hard not to feel like if that would have been a brown guy who killed his little white girl roommate... Like, the way the family would have reacted to him, like, he's a monster, they need to throw the book at him, blah, oh, yeah. blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And the cops would not have been as delicate. Definitely not. Because even the interrogation, they're just like, well, we're here to help you, and we, you know, we need to... Because where was this? Florida? Florida. Oh, we yeah. Need, no. We need, we need to know the truth, and it's like, but this man just told you he killed her, and he doesn't know what happened. So it's like, what more do you need? He said he killed her, and it's like, like you just said, like, they just feel like they can't... Like, this can't just We be have it. to find a loophole for him because we can't ruin this young man's life, is kind of the sentiment. Anyway, what was interesting, like, a few tidbits that were interesting is that we find out, so, so the, you know, and then, of course, the way the documentary is uh, organized, they try to make it seem like he's this very, like, sweet guy. They almost imply maybe he's, like, 
effeminate, if not, maybe people had suspicions about his sexuality because he lived with two girls, the one he killed and then his other good friend. And they were very, very close. But the way it's told initially is like there were no romantic things. He was never like that. He was just a really sweet boy. But um, Lies, lies. And, and that he grew up around his mom. But then we finally meet his mom and she's a crackhead. And like then his dad is a deadbeat who was out of the picture. And then we find out his dad was charged with murdering his girlfriend a few years before Randy killed his roommate. And the only reason the dad wasn't convicted of murdering his girlfriend is because he committed suicide right before he was supposed to go on trial. So there's that history. Then we find out that, like you mentioned, Randy stabbed this girl 25 times. Then we find out that he moved to Florida with those two girls because he felt like he was in a slump. He was depressed because he didn't know where his life was headed. And during this period where he felt so depressed, he was working at like a meat packing factory with the specific job of cutting meat off of jaw bones of the cow. So he said all he did all day was cut, like, stab meat. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Then... What a terrible job. So then we finally get to the end. And of course, that's when we start to better understand this kid. And let me tell you something. And you will probably agree with me. I'm very experienced sexually. And one thing I know for sure is people who present as like like not sexual or very like vanilla, very wholesome. Those are the most like demented people. They are because I agree they're because repressed. They're repressing their sexual desires. And so they're getting into weird shit. And then when you uh, add to that the superiority complex of white males and if they aren't getting those needs met, kaboom. You know who I trust? A slut. <laughs> because <laughs> that's who I would trust. Like, you know what I mean? Someone who's not like uh anyway, we start to kind of understand that... And, and you say slut lovingly. Yeah, but I mean someone who's like more sort of sex... I'm sex positive yes, yes. is what I'm, I'm saying. I'm just saying, like, I don't think that's a demeaning term. No, it isn't. But I, but, but, I, but I just feel like watching this kid immediately red flags. Immediately. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, he's too wholesome. He lives with two girls. I know something's going to be, un, like, revealed. And sure enough, like, like two-thirds of the way through, we learn that he was... Like, the night before the incident, he had, like, gotten, like, naked and was trying to, like, like be sexual with her. And she rebuffed him. Mm -hmm. And the documentary doesn't dig in too much. But I wish we could have learned, like, what was he searching on the internet? What kind of porn shit was he looking at? That boy's a freak. I can look at him and tell he's a freak. So, them trying to paint him as, like, this wholesome boy who had sleepwalking as, a like, an issue... Is just insane. So we get to the trial, and that's when they provide us with a timeline. Mm -hmm. And this is how I... The way I feel about this documentary is how I felt about that one, about that Asian girl who died in the water tank at the LA downtown LA hotel. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, at the end of the documentary, it's like, nothing's resolved. We don't know anything. It's like, they wait until the end to give us the information that would let us know this is all bullshit. Yes. And the information they provide us is the timeline. And the... Just to wrap this up, the timeline they give would, and it's a very solid, solid timeline, would mean that this boy, Randy, would have had to fall, had to have fallen asleep and started sleepwalking within a five minute window. Yes. Which it is not possible. With, yeah. Well, of course, the prosecution has experts saying like, that's just not possible because most people who sleepwalk, it's within 
deep sleep and you can't get into deep sleep in five minutes. And then, of course, the defense bring on a, an expert that says, well, it's not impossible that someone could sleepwalk during that time. But anyway, we get nowhere uh, with this case. This boy was convicted of first degree murder. He received life in prison. You do get to see him in the documentary talking and he has nothing to say. He's just like, I don't know what he literally says. I don't know what to say. I don't know what happened. Uh, my last note about this documentary is there's a black woman featured as like an expert. She's a clinical psychologist and she's never met this guy, but here she is talking about him. And all I could think of looking at that lady was she needs to see a therapist about her hair. I can't believe that this woman got on this documentary looking like that. That's my last note. Okay. Okay. Projects of interest. Bio, uh, there's a biopic of Leonore Carrington. Leonore Carrington, who's a Mexican-British novelist and artist who uh, had a very prolific relationship with Max Ernst, who I believe was killed by the Nazis. Uh, a few of her novels are still available in print, courtesy of NYRB. Definitely worth a look. Uh, I'm not familiar with the filmmakers the project was announced for, uh, Thor Klein and Lena Verma, uh, but it's called Leonora in the Morning Light, but I am looking forward to that. And unfortunately, there is a mention in our obituary section. Yeah, Bell Hooks died. Bell Hooks is gone, y'all. Um, Which, if you haven't read Bell Hooks, also, you know. I'm familiar with her. She's a scholar. She earned her PhD in English. She taught for many years. People know her as an educator, an activist, a feminist. <clears throat> um, her topics, a, a lot of it was around feminism and gender studies. Race, queer theory. Race, all, all of that. Um, she identified as queer. One of my uh, minors as an undergrad was women's studies. Uh, so we read a lot, a, lot, a lot of bell hooks in women's studies. Yeah, and I've read quite a bit uh, of her work in school as well. And I know that, you know, people had mixed feelings about her, uh, especially as it relates to... And, you know, we're also talking about the um, mid to late 80s, right. early 90s, when I think specifically within the black American community that intersectionality of like blackness and sexuality has always been a tough one. Yeah. Even in 2021, there's still, so I think a lot of people had mixed feelings about her because it's like, well, we can accept the feminism shit, but we don't want to talk about the gender shit and the queer shit. Right. So she's definitely a trailblazer. And I think she spent the last like 15 or so years of her career at a school in, Oh God, now I'm embarrassed. I'm forgetting. I think it's Kansas. I'm but there's sure. like the Bell Hooks Institute. And so she uh, did, did a lot of work and seemed like a really cool person. Like, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm sure to know her would have been um, a treat. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we have like 14 minutes left. But the secret movie today is not a movie. It was a live stage play production that was recorded live on French television. Uh, and it was The Glass Menagerie. Yep, directed by Belgian director Ivo van Hove, starring Isabelle Hubert. So I know I read The Glass Menagerie probably in like AP English. Uh, it's uh, Tennessee Williams' play. And I did my, uh, I graduated with honors for my thesis on Tennessee Williams suddenly last summer, which, like Glass Menagerie, is also a memory play. I'll let you go on about it. All I have to say is I think it's a beautiful story. Um, Oh yeah, it's hard not to be moved. It's it, know, it, it is moving. Yeah, it's probably my least favorite of uh, Williams, 
Because probably it's his least perverse, but... Uh, I will say the performances by the... Uh, and don't ask me people's names, but the the daughter... Uh-huh, uh, the character of Laura. And her gentleman caller. Mm-hmm. I thought those actors did a phenomenal job. Uh, yes, that was uh, Cyril Gui as uh, Jim O'Connor, uh, the gentleman caller, and Justine Bachelet as... Laura. I also think the, the there were some choices made that I think really enhanced the story, namely making the gentleman caller black because this story is set and in the production they it, it's also set in 1930s St. Like, Louis, U.S. South. Yeah. So I think having this and so of course you know it's fun to watch because it's like these French people. Well, you know the French. It's a tradition of uh, French cinema. Uh, a lot of French artists were. Um, fascinated or trying to grapple with, uh, you know, racism in America. Uh, the first adaptation of Native Son is a French filmmaker, um, Boris Vian and uh, Sartre. You know, they all wrote things and had productions of things that were filmed in France, set in the U.S. in those years. But what I was going to say, the casting is the gentleman caller is a black man. Yes. As it's portrayed in this uh, production. And I thought that really added to it. Also, there's... Quite a bit of music played in the production. Two songs are from D'Angelo, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously doesn't match the time period, but I thought accented it very well. And then another song is played uh, during Ar- a, a really nice dance sequence. Another song is my favorite Arcade Fire song, Neighborhood Tunnels. So I thought those are very interesting choices. Um, Isabelle Huppert is playing this, you know... So the basic story is... There is a mother who's a faded Southern belle Amanda. with her two children living with her, and they rely heavily on the son to provide. Tom, who is a facsimile of uh, Tennessee Williams himself, and he works in a warehouse. He's not happy with his life, but and is a lot, under a lot of pressure. And the mom is pushing both of her children to do better, but the daughter, we get the sense that she's uh, she's lame. She had a club foot. Right, she has a physical disability and maybe emotionally stunted, so she's having difficulty caring for herself, Um, and so the mom is very fixated on her finding a gentleman caller who can marry her and take care of her. So the brother brings over a co-worker, they have a beautiful night together when the co-worker gentleman caller admits that he is engaged. He's betrothed. So this will be the last time he sees her, but they have a beautiful evening together. The end. But all of the time and energy that went But all went the time in... and the energy that went into them preparing for this visit. Um, but, uh, so Isabel is sort of like this manic, like, desperate woman. And she plays it sort of crazily. Mm-hmm. And it's fun to watch. Oh, yeah. Like her chopping up that chicken and... My least favorite part, I think, is the character of the brother. Oh, which... Uh, I didn't like the casting of him and I... That's a notable actor. That's Noel Perez Biscayart, who's uh, also played queer characters in things like BPM. If people... Oh, I need to watch BPM. It's good. Every time I put it on, I get distracted and turn it off. Oh, it's very good. Um, But if people want to watch this, where can they watch it? Oh, I don't even know. I was sent this by another Isabel superfan on Instagram, so I'm sure that it's... Oh, it's like a file. Yeah, I I have it as an MP4. Oh, so that's why I said it's a special treat. Uh, but uh, I like the production design because it's set in like this looks like this crushed velvet cave, red velvet yeah, cave. Yeah, the set design is cool. That seems to match Isabel's hair and her um, outfits to suggest that she's part of this cave, this dysfunctional environment. Yeah. Um, it, because of the, of the uh, like the velvet of the walls, uh, 
the father that abandoned them. Their, their faces in the walls that, you know, uh, were just done by hand, right. basically, because of how the um, fabric moves uh, that they keep alluding to. But I kept thinking of Plato's allegory of the cave, uh, which I thought in this particular production, which was interesting because it's about glory days of the past. Cause the two characters, the gentleman caller and the mother, you know, their glory days have faded and these children, these two other people haven't had theirs yet. And the only hope really is for Tom who, who flees, who escapes, who doesn't pay the, he play, he plans on leaving them in the dark, if you will, by not paying the, the light bill in absconding. Yeah. There's um, a lot of symbolism. Oh yes, the unicorn in the glass menagerie, which breaks off and she gives to the gentleman caller, who's now like all the other horses, if you will. Um, I really like uh, because at work, Tom is called Shakespeare because he goes and writes poetry in the bathroom. And uh, so when Jim O'Connor meets the sister, he's like, "Oh, you're Shakespeare's sister," which reminded me of this. Virginia Woolf essay about like if Shakespeare had a sister, how history would not know her because she was a woman. Um, it I haven't read the play in a long time, but he Tom's character has a lot of magic tricks he does, and as it starts, he's like playing with this fabric in his pocket, and you were so perturbed by what I put on for you. Well, because uh, it's not a movie. You're like, what so is this? Um, but in it's different in this version, but in the text, I remember it being a rainbow flag because this was, was written in 1944, uh, which is interesting because that, you know, a lot of our uh, queer culture comes from out of the cinema and trying to find representations of ourselves in the only mirror we have, which is cinema. Uh, and how, you know, the Wizard of Oz and the rainbow and Dorothy and being friends of Dorothy, those are things that all were born out of the Wizard of Oz, and I'm not sure when the rainbow became the gay symbol, mm -hmm. the symbol for uh, our community, but it's just interesting that in this 1944 play, Tennessee Williams had written that. And there is reference in um, this stage version where Tom, who goes out to the movies every night, who's clearly not going to the movies, talks about this, this misty, foggy world where sex is like a rainbow in it, mm. which I thought was really interesting. Um, but yeah, no, that just the production design makes it's a memory poem, as it says. But this makes memory seem like a level of hell. Yeah. With all the the hellish light, I I really liked it. I think you know Isabel's doing all these goofy things that are kind of disarming, but then it really crashes down in that those final few moments when, you, like, her demeanor completely changes. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah, is when kind she of, finds out it's. Uh curtains for this little relationship which is kind of creepy um and then of course her wails as she's she's screaming at her son to leave but like holding him back on the stairs and as he tears himself away from them anyway it's so over the top that it's i mean i think we were giggling but it's also distressing it is um we have to wrap up soon oh and i wanted to mention that uh the one review i'd read of this staging was um comparing it to Pasolini's theorem uh, because of the gentleman caller. And I have to say that that's a really interesting illusion, especially because Ivo van Hove also staged theorem. Uh, and I also wanted to bring up that back in the day, in 2006-07, when I was writing my thesis, I had to pay a lot of money for a VHS copy of the 1950 film version starring Kirk Douglas and Jane Wyman. Oh, boy. And I also saw oh. a staging of this at the Walker with Randy Harrison from Queer as Folk in, like, 2007 as well. Well, yeah, after watching this, it just made me think that, um, like, hearing some of the dialogue and thinking, like, it really is up to us, like, the individual to make a life for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And, like, 
I think about the Nike slogan, like, just do it. Like, you just have to get out there and do things. Yeah. I feel like people are so stagnant, like, waiting for something to come along. Like, the idea that this mom thinks that some person is going to come along. Well, because that's the generation she was born of. Like, it's, it's not in this passage, but I remember in the play she's got something like, I had 17 gentlemen collars in one day. It's like... That being said, she does encourage her children to go take... Like, she pays for her daughter to go to, like, a secretarial school, and then she's upset that her son uh, doesn't go take some other night class to mm-hmm. learn a skill. So it's not that she's completely uh, void of that concept. I just think... It, ma- it makes me think, like, just... In this life and knowing people and people commenting on my life and it, like we've accomplished a lot with very little and I think it yeah my advice to people would be like just just get out there and do shit like stop waiting around for something to happen like you can make a life for yourself if you try <laughs> Right. Just try. But, you know, the the trauma that this person had to go through extricating himself from the dysfunction of his family, I think, you know, it also hits heavy. And, you know, that's something he was fascinated with throughout his career, Tennessee Williams. Right. Because, you know, Suddenly Last Summer was also set in the 30s. And that lobotomy was also something that happened to his sister. So, you know, these horrors of what happened during the Depression era America, you know, would inform this playwright that was creating some of the most phenomenal American texts of the 1950s. You have a quote. I I have a quote from Bell Hooks that I thought fits actually with this secret film. Go Um, ahead. Knowing how to be solitary is central to the art of loving. When we can be alone, we can be without, uh, we can be without others without using them as a means of escape. Okay. Anything else? No. Bye. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.